You know that um, that whole "Have you tried turning it off and on again?" meme that works for computers. Yes. Did you know it also works for fridge freezers? User error seventy two. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Dan. And we're back. And nothing up front this time. Let's get straight on with it. Let's start with a hashtag ask error. Do you read everything or do you follow all the people? And of course, I'm talking about social media, Twitter and whatnot. Do you follow a bunch of people or like me, do you follow a very small number of people and read all the tweets? I, I can't get behind this idea that you have to listen to everything everyone you follow says. I, I don't I don't see why that's a valuable thing. So no, I I am apparently according to Twitter I am following 3780 accounts. Some of those will be people, some of them will be companies, some of them will be marketing, some of them will probably be bots. Uh, well no, a lot of them are bots actually. And no, uh, I I open Twitter and I scroll and see a few and then alt tab away and do something else. I don't definitely don't feel the need to read everything anyone says. Joe, are you telling me you read all of the tweets that everyone you follow ever posts? Yeah. Do you also browse Reddit by new? <laughs> I don't look at Reddit um, very often at all. Wow, okay. Yeah, no, I, I definitely do not do that. I only follow 160 people, but I, I do not read everything they post. I do the same like Alan, scroll through whatever's on top and if it's any good. But, you know, everybody's got retweets and their likes show up and things like that, right? So I can't I can't even comprehend the ability of like, what does it take to try to go through and read everything that everyone posts? Like how, do you have a system for that? Yeah, the system is don't follow people who shit post all the time. But that's not what I'm doing. I'm following a whole bunch of people and I'm dipping in and out of their lives. Just like I don't follow my friends around and listen to everything they say or, you know, I, I wouldn't, if I follow someone on Facebook, read every single post they do on Facebook or... Uh, this is the point at which you say you haven't got a Facebook account. I know. Yeah. Okay. Let's get past oh, that. I've got three. Thank you very much. <laughs> but I, yeah, I just don't, I don't see the value in it. I, I don't see why, what it would do for my life to know every single tweet an individual had ever said. Well, if you're worth following, then you're worth reading everything that you say. No. Surely. No. Who's your favorite band? I'm too old to have a favorite band. <laughs> Which, Desert Island, you've got one record. What is it? Uh, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. Pink Floyd. Is every single record Pink Floyd have ever made as good as every other record Pink Floyd have ever made? Demonstrably no. Right. So you don't have to listen to all of Pink Floyd to appreciate Pink Floyd. Therefore, I don't have to read every tweet from Joe Ressington to like Joe Ressington. There are a lot of accounts that I follow on Twitter, too, that are just like, good vibes kind of thing of course there are <laughs> well no it's good when you're when you're scrolling through and you're like somebody's pissed off about you know the latest politically charged thing and then uh, right below that you just got like a really wholesome mr rogers quote that is like you know you're good just the way you are or whatever you know so you're saying that you like to get affirmations from twitter well i think that uh it helps balance out all the crazy stuff to have like little uh i also sub to get motivated on reddit it's just like little you know Things slipped into your day there that's like oh that was nice <laughs> i agree with you it's good to have a nice mixture and i do i have a nice mixture of um yeah there's a bit of politics in there and i follow a bunch of journalists and 
So I get some news via Twitter, but also I follow a bunch of silly bots, like bots that post scans of computer magazines from the 1980s, like random pages, and that triggers that nostalgic vibe in me. And I follow a bot that prints um, a little train in Unicode characters with little flowers around it. It's a little train with little carriages. It's quite cute every so often. Um, and all kinds of comedy accounts that make me chuckle now and then, like amusing pictures of Jacob Rees-Mogg or whatever. So I, I, I think it's good to have a mixture, but I, I would get bored if I, if, I, if I had to see every single picture from all of those bot accounts. And equally, I would get depressed if I had to read every post from every journalist that I follow. So I think it's nice to have a little mixture and dip in and out of it from time to time. I don't like change generally. That's why I'm an XFCE user. You two are involved in the creation of new software, so you must fucking hate people like me who just moan all the time whenever you make the slightest little change. So how do you deal with that? I don't hate people like you because... The world is an interesting and diverse place with lots of different people, and they're, and that's fine. But um, it also doesn't really bother me because you don't use my software. So um, if you if you were the kind of person who you know really didn't like change and you used the software that I use, then that might frustrate me. But we do get that. Like we make changes in Ubuntu now and then, and yeah, for sure we get a lot of constructive feedback and some not so constructive feedback and yeah that can be frustrating um i don't know what you do about that because there's there's people with different points of view some people like change some people don't you just have to balance it really but how do you balance that pushing forward with uh, progress against people who don't want that progress well, you've got to make a coherent argument for why you're doing it. You, and one of the phrases that I hate more than anything is the phrase change for change's sake. And that's just putting your hand up and saying, I'm ignorant. I don't know why this change is happening. Um, so I'll just say it's you're changing it just because you can, which is almost always 100% utter bullshit. There is always a reason why you're making a change. You might know what that is. But the person making the change does. Um, and so it's the onus is on the, the person who's making the change to explain why they're doing it, articulate why they're doing it, what the benefits are. And, you know, if there's any reasons why that's a, there's a negative change, any impact of doing that. And the onus is on the person who's consuming that, that content to understand why that change is being made and do their best to understand it rather than just dismiss it as, uh, change is bad. Ugh. Yeah, I think that for us, the biggest thing is communication and trying to let users know why these changes are happening and how um, that they're in the benefit of either them or the developer. And sometimes, no matter how much we communicate about a topic, and no matter how much consensus there is about a change in like the greater ecosystem, that people are still very upset. And I think that's the only time where it's actually frustrating for me because it's like, okay, well, you know, it's been explained like why this thing is happening. It's not just us that thinks this thing should happen. And you still are really upset because some legacy application that you use depends on a thing and they are not going to update it. And like now that's going to be broken for you. And that's a bummer. I understand that. But for 
everyone else, like this thing is happening and, you know, I'm sorry. Like, I don't really know what to do about that. It's sometimes things have to move forward and there's very good reasons for it. Well, one of the reasons that I see is that developers need to justify their jobs. And, uh, you know, that's why often you will get software that is seemingly finished, but then developers just keep changing it for the sake of changing it. <laughs> yeah, okay, well done, triggered. That's just not the case, because you might consider a piece of software done, but that's from your perspective and your use cases. You're not the only person who uses that software. There are plenty of other people who use it in different ways and say, well, it doesn't fit my needs, or um, this piece of software consumes some other piece of software which has moved forward and we need to move forward with it, whether that's style guide changes or the UI is different and so we need to update or maybe some library has been deprecated and we need to move to a new version of the library and so we've got to make changes and while we make those changes it makes sense to change something else while we go it's not just changing it for the sake of it it's changing it because there are reasons and just because you're too ignorant to not know what those reasons are doesn't mean those reasons aren't there I think one of the biggest things that's happening right now is we're realizing that the way we've written software for a very long time is very insecure and requires a lot of trust and is kind of built on legacy software distribution models. And so rethinking all of that and going, okay, how do we build software that actively informs users and gives them control over their own computers and doesn't take away their autonomy or sneak around behind their back. Like these are all kind of new problems that we're dealing with because in the old days, software was really simple and you couldn't do a lot of the things that you can do now. And the way things were distributed was like a very small scale way. And so we're kind of combating all these new evils and it's going to require some changes in the way we do things. Hashtag ask error. Hypothetically speaking, do you think it was easier to be unfaithful in a relationship 20 years ago or now? Hmm. <laughs> Nobody wants to go first with this, do they? <laughs> um, I guess before the advent of like GPS tracking and mobile devices that could tell where you've been you know carrying a thing that tracks your every move and before the advent of social media where it was very easy to see what people have been up to you know previously or see where they've been and you know people and the advent of people sharing a lot about their lives and before the fact that everyone carried a camera around in their pocket and so could get evidence of indiscretions and misdemeanors you know very quickly and share it with uh with loved ones yeah totally it probably was easier to skulk about and not get found out and um have you know something on the side when uh when you're in a allegedly stable relationship totally i i would think it was easier whereas now you know all it takes is your electronic footprint to give you up or someone else to take a photo of you doing something you shouldn't be doing and yeah you're done i know that some people are going to be like but what about access they have all these dating sites now what about tinder what about oh whatever but i i gotta agree with you alan i 
And the, the data that we have, like from users of these services is that, well, especially for us males, that there's really not more access now at all. So, uh, I, I'd have to say that, um, yeah, it's, it would, it was probably a lot, a lot easier to do, to get away with things or to sneak around. Actually, um, you know, what's funny is on a, on a more wholesome note, it's harder to surprise people now. It's a lot harder to plan surprises for things when it's like, oh, you got a text message and an email and a thing and we got a verification request and we're going to do this. And like, there's all this information about everywhere that you are and everything that you're doing constantly. Yeah, I think you're right there. I, I think when it comes to this cheating thing, right, that it was much easier to get away with back then, but I think it was harder to initiate. I think that these days, I'm not having it, Dan, it is easier to meet people and cheat if you want to, but I think it is also easier to get caught. So it probably sort of all balances out and makes it roughly the same as it used to be. How is it easier to meet people now? Um, through Facebook and things. I've seen many times people get chatting to uh, people from their lives, their previous lives, people who they used to know, and then end up uh, like running off with them, essentially getting back together with old flames and stuff. Um, and that, that's just one example. But there's just more chance to meet like-minded people. And, um, you know, apps like Tinder and Bumble and whatever just make it easier, surely. I don't know. I mean, it's difficult for me because I've been married for nearly 20 years, 19 years this month. And so every relationship I've had, like from 20 years ago backwards, were all initiated through conversations either at college or in a pub or in a nightclub, basically. So I met every girlfriend I ever had in one of those three places, in a pub or in a nightclub mostly. Uh, so, and that, and that was just, you know, hanging out with friends and meeting a new person who's a friend of a friend or meeting a complete stranger in a bar and chatting to them. So for me, it's very alien. The whole concept of Tinder and blind dates and swiping right and swiping left and all that is completely alien to me because I never had to do that. I, all my relationships were built on meeting people first and, you know, having a conversation and figuring out whether you like them face to face, deciding if you're going to go on a date after that. And then, you know, beyond that, whether, whether it continued or not. So my view on this is slightly tainted. And I find, I found that because I wasn't, um, a particularly extrovert person, I found that difficult, but I still managed to, you know, find a life partner and, you know, numerous partners before that. Numerous sounds like the wrong word, actually. A few <laughs> partners before that. Um, so I didn't have a problem. I, I, I think I'm a typical, typical example of people of that age, I think. So I actually think it, I think it's harder now. I got to agree with Alan on this one. I, you know, there was a, a small period of time when certain dating apps started getting more like mainstream, I guess, where it seemed like that was a really good way to meet people. But I, I feel like for the last, I don't know, six or seven years now that everyone that I had met um, up until my latest relationship that I've been in for about a year now was all people that I had met in person. Well, I know a person who, um, I, I need to try and not identify this person, person X, and this person 
uses those dating apps or whatever to uh, sleep around, shall we say, and uh, sometimes be in one relationship and um, cheat loads. And uh, the, the, the opportunity is there if you go looking for it. Now, it seems that the three of us are not interested in going and looking for it and probably haven't even given much thought to it. But having a fairly good friend who does that has opened my eyes to the idea that it is incredibly easy if you are a certain type of person who is attractive for whatever reason it is incredibly easy if you are an ugly fucker like me maybe it might be a bit harder i always find this very difficult when you observe someone else who does this when it's not firsthand because we have no idea like i personally don't have any idea who this person is and what their relationship with their other half is i have friends of friends who've gone out and had indiscretions whilst being married, whilst having kids, you know, full on relationship, married and everything. And they've gone out and, you know, met new women and, uh, you know, done a lot of, um, infidelity while they've been married. Um, but the wife we later found out was well aware of most of it. And it's very difficult to, say, well, you know, if that was in my situation, my wife would have, you know, figured it out from the messages on my phone. She might have wanted to, but it's very difficult for me to know, like, whether a third party, fourth party actually is well aware of this and actually doesn't care or does care and hides it. You know, do you see what I mean? It's like some people's relationships are different and that kind of stuff goes on and it's part of their relationship. Not everyone is nuclear family and, you know, married for life and only one sexual partner for their entire life. Some people are just different. I suppose I'd, I'd have to kind of agree that it's more about the people, right? That the people who are interested in doing this sort of thing are going to find a way. And I don't think the technology really plays a role. It seems like every few months, the dumb phone trope comes up. And what I mean by that is you'll get some old Nokia re-release or you'll get people who just say, oh, I want a digital detox and I've just had enough of my smartphone and oh, I'm going to get a dumb phone. And, and whenever it comes up, people say, oh, yeah, I'd really love to do that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to get one of those dumb phones. My battery's going to last a week and I'll just make phone calls and text when I need to and I'll have a much more productive life as a result of it. And just every time it comes up, I just think, ah, what's wrong with you? Of course, you might use it for about five minutes and then you'd get your iPhone or Android phone back. And it just feels like such a trope at this point that it's, it's annoyed me enough to bring it up to you. Like, do, do you see this? Yeah, and I think this is a great example of why you don't ask users for solutions. You ask them about their problems because they're going to give you solutions that like they won't be happy with. But when you actually talk to people about why they want this, I find they usually say things like, oh, I'm tired of getting all these notifications all the time. I'm very distracted. Or they say things like the battery life was so much better or the hardware was so much more durable. And they're not really saying that they want that much to change about their access to applications. It's more about new kind of not really new features that they want but they 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 want to solve regressions that we've accepted in the smartphone era yeah i can relate to that i um i recently uh set my phone to switch itself off at night 
Um, there's a feature on Android where you can just tell it to power down at a particular time. And so every day, um, late in the evening, it just shuts off. Um, and then wakes up just before the alarm goes off, about five minutes before the alarm goes off. Um, so, you know, I, for that period of the night, there's no temptation for me to reach over and grab the phone at any time because it's off and there's that stumbling block of turning the thing on, waiting for it to boot up. So that's, yeah, that's one in inverted commas coping mechanism for this kind of stuff. And I can also like disable notifications or go airplay mode or whatever. Um, so I think Dan's right. It, it is solving the problem the wrong way. Um, I can, I can kind of relate to people who see these old phones like being re-released, these remakes, um, and feel uh, a sense of nostalgia because like I had those, I had the banana phone and the, the 6110, 7110, 8110, all that series of phones from Nokia. I had those back in the day and yeah, they did last for ages and they were robust. And I used to spend a lot of time talking to friends on them and texting friends on them. And so there's lots of happy memories when you think about those devices, much the same way as people get happy memories thinking about Game Boys and stuff like that from back in the day. But I do actually have a friend who has done the Switch. And the only time he gets a smartphone out is when he comes to um, events um, so he can stay in touch with everyone and, and you know make sure he knows what's going on. But when he's back at home the phone goes in a drawer and the only phone he has is uh, is a dumb phone that makes phone calls and texts he's i think he he felt exactly as you said overwhelmed with all this content and felt distracted a lot of the time and felt he couldn't focus i think and so he put it in a drawer and switched to just using a phone and he says he feels better for it so for some people it does work is he glued to his computer all day every day though uh, he's a developer, so a significant amount of the time he's sat in front of a PC. Yeah, sure. And yet when he moves away from that computer to go out or whatever, he doesn't take a smartphone with him, and so he disconnects. Yeah, I believe so. I, I, he doesn't live near me, but you know, I, I can only go on what I'm told, and he said, yeah, he just doesn't, doesn't, have, doesn't have a smartphone anymore. And so the only time you can talk to him is when he's at his PC. I can somewhat see the appeal of that, but I'm kind of a mobile-first person, in that, um, well, I was out today and had to wait around for about 10 minutes, and so I caught up on a bit of work uh, reading my RSS uh, headlines. And it's it's just too handy for me to do that, to be able to, um, I suppose it means I never fully switch off, uh, but it is handy to be able to work wherever and stay in contact with people and read all the tweets and, and whatnot. So I just, for me, it just seems like, yeah, I think you're right, Dan. It is people trying to solve the wrong problem or the they are trying to find the wrong solution for the problem that they have. And maybe the likes of Apple and Google will build in more of these features. We're already seeing it, aren't we, with the um, like screen time feature or whatever, trying to discourage people from using their phone at night or whatever. But it just, it just annoys me when people say they're going to get a dumb phone because they never actually do it. I think you've misrepresented yourself, Joe. You say you're a mobile first person. And I know in your career before you worked in podcasting, that was the case. Like you, your mobile phone was your primary device because it was with you all the time when you're outside. But now that you work in podcasting, you are in front of a PC a lot of the time, whether it's editing or recording or having meetings or doing production or something. You're in front of a PC 
I would say proportionally way more than you ever were before. And so I think you might need to rethink that whole self, self-identifying as a mobile first person. I think you probably are a PC first, but the mobile, you're still clinging on to that mobile all the time. Like when you walk away from your desk, I imagine you have your phone in your hand all the time. Yeah, or my pocket. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm much the same. But I think, I think for those of us who do sit in front of a PC, it's less of a problem. Um, but for, yeah, people who are out and about and always on their phones. Yeah, I, I would imagine switching to a dumb phone would be like having an arm cut off. Yeah. Well, I do actually still use my phone and tablet to do most of my reading um, and research, which is a big part of what I do now. Um, and meetings as well. I have Slack installed on my phone and tablet and often use that and then get really annoyed that I can't see screen sharing and then have to turn a laptop on. But I think I do probably, it's probably 50-50 these days Mm. when it used to be like 80-20 or whatever. Yeah. Hashtag ask error. Do you have a sliding doors moment in your past? Now, when I proposed uh, talking about this, you two had no fucking clue what sliding doors was. What? Uh, Well, uh, was it just Dan didn't know? Yes. Okay. Right. So Sliding Doors was a British film from the turn of the century with Gwyneth Paltrow and some other people. And the basic premise is that uh, there's a moment in her life where she either gets onto the uh, the tube train or doesn't. And then the film splits in two. And uh, then you see it from both perspectives. And it turns out that this one seemingly insignificant moment actually uh, was very influential and made a massive difference in her life. And so basically, if you look back at your life, can you identify a, a one seemingly insignificant moment that actually had a massive impact on you? Nope. <laughs> I think that's really hard to try to pick out like, oh, this insignificant thing actually changed everything. How could you even remember that it happened? I don't know. I, I feel like everything that I can even think about that is like, oh, this was a life-changing event, then I've of course, can't label it insignificant because it was life-changing. Well, seemingly insignificant at the time, I think, is the key issue here. I don't know. I I can't think of one. I should point out, as uh, the famous comedian Richard Herring says, the film is incorrectly named. It shouldn't really be called Sliding Door because it's not the sliding of door that changes her destiny. It should really be called Girl with a Doll Gets Moved because that's what slows her down on the steps before she actually gets to the train and means she misses her train. Um, so um, in my uh, girl with a doll that gets moved moments in my life, I think I think there's a couple, but they're not the insignificant types. They're the life choices that I've been made, I've made influenced by other people. So it's it's where people have said something to me or motivated me to do something and I did it. And either if, if they hadn't said that to me, if they hadn't motivated me on that day to do that thing, then I can think of two career changes that I've, I've made that I definitely wouldn't have made if those two people hadn't said those things. And they were, they were, they were quite life changing. So yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's, it's possible for external factors to, like if you sit back and think about it, like major events to to change in your life as a result of like a single conversation with someone. Well, yeah, I feel like if I hadn't gone on Linux Unplugged one night, then I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you two now, for example. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> 
yeah, it would have been uh, a lot easier. But just that one seemingly insignificant thing, you know, I could have just gone to bed or, no, I'll stay up and go on that podcast and just have a laugh, talk some Linux, and then ended up talking to Chris and, you know, kind of established the relationship which ultimately led to Linux Action News and then after the acquisition getting taken on and being able to do this whole thing full time. And I I think I really can trace it back to that one uh, moment. Yeah, it's weird. I, I had one when I worked at a college in 93, 94, something like that. I'd been working there for a long time and I was kind of slacking off. It was an easy job and I didn't really have a lot of work to do. And the guy I worked with gave me a stern talking to is effectively my team lead line manager. And he gave me a stern talking to and he said, you need to leave this place. You, you're, you're getting too comfortable. You need to leave. And I hadn't even thought about leaving at that point. And once he had, he had that conversation with me. Um, you know, I considered him a friend and I really thought about my life choices after that. It was just one of those things that a single conversation that, you know, he, he was quite cross with me that he felt I was wasting my life in a job that was the same job he was doing, but he was later in life and he was effectively like nearly retired. But he said, you're so young, you've got so much ahead of you. You should change your job. Um, you should leave here, even though he quite enjoyed working with me. He said, you, you need to get out. And, um, yeah, I wouldn't have done that. And the other one was very similar. I was sat in an office, um, only a couple of years later and, uh, I wasn't happy with the new job that I got. And I was chatting to the woman next to me, this woman, Fiona, who had the desk next to me. And I said, uh, I'm not, I'm not really happy doing what I'm doing. And she said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'd like to come and work for your company. And she said, why don't you just go and ask the director for a job? And I thought, you can't do that. That's not possible. You can't just walk up to like a partner in a consulting organization and ask for a job. And she was like, of course you can. Why, why not? What's the worst that could happen? You could say no and you've still got your current job. What's like, and it was like that motivational from her. I thought, oh yeah, screw it. So when everyone went home, I just walked up, knocked on his door, went in and said, you know, basically gives a job. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, he asked me a few questions and they went, yeah, okay, let's see what we can do. And then I started working for him and my career completely changed. So there was like two really pivotal moments in my, in my twenties that were just external people who said, you should do this thing. And I did that thing and it changed. And here you are working for a spaceman. <laughs> Will polarized politics last forever? I think. At least to me, it seems clear that we are living in a time where politics, be it Brexit, Trump, whatever, is just massively polarized. Either you are one side or the other, the center ground seems to have disappeared. Now, I may be wrong about that, so feel free to argue with me. But if my thesis is correct and we are living in polarized times, is that just how it's going to be now? Is it just going to last forever? I would like to say no, and I would like to say that, you know, over the past couple of years, we've seen like what this kind of mindset can do to our economy and to our citizens and, you know, all these tragedies that we've been through and all these kind of things. And we'd look back and we'd say, wow, it turns out that this party was so wrong that now we can I don't know, move forward in some other direction and and meet at some other ground and not be over here anymore. But it seems like that 
things are only getting more and more polarized and the folks that are responsible for some of the like most demonstrably awful policies and decisions in recent memory are getting more and more entrenched and believing that those things are right. So I don't know, man. My perspective is a little more glass half full in that um, I would highlight one key word in your question, which was, will polarized politics last forever? And the answer is no, because nothing lasts forever. Um, it doesn't matter how far back you go. Like, there's always change. I know sometimes some people don't like change, but change happens. And I'm not a political scientist or historian, but I'm pretty confident that there's always change. That's, that's the one constant is there's always change. And I don't know that I can foresee what it is, but one thing that I know humans have a problem with is they view the world through the, the myopic view of their own lifetime. And they forget that before they were born, other things happened. And after they're going to be dead, different things will happen. And so we get this real blinkered view of the world through our own eyes, which is like natural human behavior. It's, it's pretty normal for that to happen. And I don't think we're quite capable of stepping back and saying, look, this is a phase that we're going through. Things will change, just like the wars of the previous century. Those were periods of time that were terrible, but they came to an end. And if you look at the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, they were very different times. And you look at the things that enabled some of those things, or some of those changes, were things you probably wouldn't have guessed, like the pill enabled some changes in the 60s and 70s. And um, international cheap international flight changed the, the dynamic of Europe and, and America considerably over that period of time. And so I think there's things that could happen over the next 10 or 20 years that would dramatically change how our politics will work. And it could be something as simple as supersonic flight makes a resurgence or cheap fuel makes it easy for you to get across the Atlantic super fast in a supersonic jet or, you know, something you wouldn't normally expect that triggers a change in the culture that triggers a change in the way people vote and the way people deal with politics. It could be breaking up of the UK or it could be reunification of the UK and Europe. Who knows? But I think it takes philosophers and political scientists to kind of figure out what this is. And I pretty much guess none of them will get it right. But I think we'll look back in 30 or 40 years and say, yeah, that was a terrible time, but it'll change. Right. So 30, 40 years, that was going to be one of my questions, because obviously on a geological timescale, things will change. But it, it seems to me that all those changes that you've talked about are a progression, a progression in technology, mostly. And it seems that those progressions in technology have made us all more connected with each other. Like we're talking to Dan, who's thousands of miles away from us right now. And I, um, the other day there was a, just a stupid thing. I was in the supermarket and there was this cheese sausage that looked like a, um, a sticker that, um, cheese had made, uh, the brush to the front of the line one. And I took a photo of that and sent it to him. And I thought that is amazing that I can just share a stupid joke with someone who is, you know, 5,000 miles away or whatever instantly. And that 
connectivity is only going to get more and more and quicker and quicker and better and better, right? Well, I think the problem with that connectivity is now that you're connecting people that have really bad ideas and letting them know that there's lots of them out there. Exactly. And so in the next 30 to 40 years, when we have massive climate problems and there's refugees fleeing uninhabitable areas of the planet as we all slowly die, the right's still going to be like, oh, it's immigration. Don't change anything about our technology. There's immigrants are coming in here and ruining everything. Right. But the, the flip side is technology could improve things like uh, being able to make uh, protein without having to kill animals. Like mass farming could change completely. Maybe uh, the desalination of seawater could be made like so that it doesn't need incredible amounts of electrical power in order for the for a plant to work in which case irrigation of parts of the world which are normally like desert lands could be viable and so people would move in different directions maybe they'd move further south to where it's warm but also there's seawater that can be desalinated and and irrigate their land like these technology developments i think as I said, we're too myopic and we, we look too much at like the technology that's just gone and iterate on that. I would like to see things like what if AR became a thing where the three of us could be having this conversation, but actually feels like we're in the same room. We're not talking, we're not in a special room with a microphone and padding, but it actually feels like you guys are sat in my lounge. But for you, it feels like you're sat, I'm sat in your lounge or something, you know, what if, the people that we invite into our homes virtually are people from different countries, different cultures. And, you know, they bring along their cultural differences. And maybe there's something that that brings people together like that. You're a dreamer, Alan. You're a fucking dreamer. I know, right? Yeah, that's way too optimistic, man. It's going to be this super racist guy that lives in the middle of nowhere in Australia and a super racist guy that lives in the middle of nowhere in America and a super racist guy that lives in the middle of nowhere in Russia, all in a room connecting over their shared culture. Yeah. And then there'll be the other side, people who think that, um, you know, all healthcare should be socialized and um, perhaps some extreme views in the other way. Uh, they'll all get together in um, AR rather than just in you know in Facebook groups or whatever it is that they're doing now. I, I don't know, man. You you were too optimistic, Alan. I think I've got kids. I have to be optimistic. Like, there's no way that I could sit here and say, "Hey, kids, eat up your chicken nuggets and chips because you're going to be dead tomorrow." Like, you can't be pessimistic if you've got children about the future. You you can't. It just wouldn't work. We're definitely at the point though where if the politics don't change, the stakes are pretty high and. I don't know the the world that uh, that our next generation might have to deal with. Uh, it's pretty scary sounding. No, it's all going to be a free software utopia, isn't it, Alan? Like all all of this new technology is going to be powered by free and open source software, and um, everyone's going to get along, and they'll have uh, cultural cross pollination. And everything will be absolutely fine. And your kids are definitely not going to be, uh, you know, put out of work by robots and uh, having to wipe old people's asses for a living or anything. Maybe that's your sliding doors version of the future. My sliding doors version of the future is different. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>